morning, church. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Truly, Father, you are worthy of all praise. You are worthy of every offering that we could bring, every act of devotion we could do. And we confess this to you with great joy this morning. And it is with joy that we now open the Scriptures and we pray that as we do so that your Holy Spirit would would minister to us that He would open our minds to understand the Scriptures, that He would open our hearts to accept and celebrate what we find there. We pray, Father, that Your Word would, would lay us open, expose our hearts, that what we truly value would be obvious to us, that you would magnify Christ in our minds such that as we close the Scriptures here in a few moments, as we finish studying the Word, that the words that we've sung already would be all the more true. Gladly would we leave behind us all the world in order to have more of Christ Please magnify Him in our eyes. It's in His name that we pray these things to you. Amen. Well, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. In Mark chapter 14, we find another one of... Mark's sandwiches. Mark likes to use a particular literary device where he, he sandwiches one story in the middle of another. And so what we'll find as we read is a story begins, is interrupted by another, and then concludes in the last two verses. That's what we'll find as we read Mark 14 verses 1 through 11. So be looking for that story within a story as we read you would please stand with me and we'll read Mark 14 verses 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him for they said, not during the feast lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, 
And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. You may be seated. Everyone in this passage does what they do because of what they value relative to Christ. Everyone in the passage does what they do because of what they value relative to Christ. That's actually a great way of viewing all of humanity. Everyone, all of us, everything that we do, the choices we make, the attitudes that govern our interactions, the actions that we perform, all of it stems from what we value relative to Christ. Whether anyone wants to recognize it or not, Jesus Christ is central to all of human existence and everything that we do is done relative to how we value Christ and everything relative to Christ. It's not true just of Christians. It's true of all humanity. The question put in front of us this morning is, what do you value? And how is it shaping your life? Is Christ at the center of what you love? And therefore, is, is Christ shaping your life? Or is He an impediment to what you value? Is He viewed as something that needs to be removed? We find ourselves now in a new section of Mark. The last section of Mark's Gospel we found this growing tension between Jesus and the, the leaders of, of Israel. From here to the end of Mark, 14 to, to the end, everything that happens either prepares for, accomplishes, or follows from Jesus' death. And here at the beginning of chapter 14, we've got these two stories sandwiched together. And a reason that Mark likes to do this is to show a contrast, and that's what, that's what he's done for us here. There's a contrast between people and activities. You have a story of, of people engaging in treachery against Jesus, surrounding a story of someone engaging in great devotion to Jesus, intended to call to our attention, how is it that we perceive of Jesus? How do we value Him relative to other things? All of it centers on Him, which brings us to the first idea that's conveyed by the passage, which is that Jesus is the great divider. Jesus is the great divider. Broadly speaking, we have two, two groups of people here in the passage, and they are divided by their dispositions toward the Lord Jesus. To those who believe Jesus is central in that, He is the object of all hope and worship and exaltation. To those who reject Jesus, He is central in that He is the singular impediment to their plans, power, and or profit. Some are plotting to kill Him by stealth. Think about this. Some are plotting to kill Him by stealth. 
One pours out an almost unfathomably expensive gift on him. Another decides to betray him unto death. Think of those, those things all being done to Jesus. Has anybody done anything like that to you this week? We're just not that consequential. Not, none of us. Jesus is central to all of these people. Everyone either adores Him or they want to kill Him. Everything that everyone does in the passage is done because of their regard or disregard for Him. That's true of the people represented in Mark 14. It's true of everyone breathing on planet earth right now. You see, the the Bible presents Jesus as coming to us, coming to the earth within a particular context, a salvation historical context. What is that context? Utter eternal doom. Man, all man, all of us, everyone outside these walls, we, we were all conceived with, with a condition that only, only Christ can address. We're conceived with hearts bent against God, our Creator, bent against Him in sin. It's been this way all the way since Adam. Our every impulse from the womb to the tomb is to rebel. And this rebellion brings upon us justice from a good and just God in the form of eternity in hell. Now what is astounding is not that God would bring justice upon us in the form of eternal wrath, but rather that He would offer us mercy, and not just mercy, but in the form that He offers it to us, especially in light of our many, many offenses against Him. What is the form of the mercy that He offers to us? Well, this is where Jesus comes in. Jesus as we read the Scriptures, and especially read the Scriptures in the whole thrust of the storyline of, of the Bible, Jesus is not like the, 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 the nice guy at the gym, who all you have to do to, to account for His existence is just to say, oh, well, He's a cool guy. No, Jesus does and says things that will not allow us to just dismiss Him that easily, especially in light of our sinful condition and our desperate need to be saved from eternal wrath. Jesus does and says things that the Hebrew Scriptures indicate only God does. Jesus walks on water. Jesus silences storms. Jesus brings corpses back to life. His his very presence causes legions of demons to, to cower in submission. Crucially, Jesus says some very important things. Jesus says, I have authority to forgive sins. Not in the same sense that you and I forgive sins. He has the authority to forgive sins in the sense that God does. He says, I'm going to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days... Rise again. He also says, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. In other words, Jesus has come to pay the penalty for sinners in their place on the cross and to be raised from the dead so that they might be forgiven. Further, Jesus says, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life, that is, whoever would not give me his life, they will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. The mercy that Christ represents is afforded to those and only those who surrender their lives to Him in repentance and faith, turning from their sin and trusting in Him. See, Jesus does and says things that that, that require everyone to deal with Him. You have to do something with Jesus. You can't just dismiss Him. You, you cannot take some kind of position of neutrality toward Jesus of Nazareth. You, to, you can't say he's a good teacher or I admire him or he's a nice guy. He's the great divider. And everyone who has, who has heard of the things that he has done and heard the words that he has said, they have been put in a place where they, they, they have to decide, is he the Lord of glory, or is He my ultimate impediment? Is He the impediment to what I actually want in value? And so Jesus represents for all mankind the great question, the question for us this morning. What is Jesus to you? What have you done with Jesus? Is He the Lord of glory? Do you recognize the terrible predicament that your sin puts you in before a holy God? Do you recognize that He's the Lord of glory? Do you see that He alone can save you? And do you surrender to Him saying, yes, I want you? Or are you so short-sighted that you say, no, He's in the way of what I want? And he needs to be removed so that I can have what I really value, the things of this world. Now, ignoring that question, what is Jesus to me? Ignoring that question is actually to answer that question. And it is to answer it by saying he's an impediment. A second theme reflected by way of contrast in this passage is that there is a wide chasm, a wide chasm between what the insider values and what the outsider values. And what I mean by those two, those two terms, insider and outsider, is the one who has said Jesus is my Lord, insider, in the kingdom, and the one who has said Jesus is an impediment, I don't want him, I'm outside the kingdom. There's a wide chasm between those two groups of people in terms of what they value. Now, as, as I've already mentioned, Jesus is central to everyone in the passage either positively or negatively, based upon what they value. Now, consider the Jewish leaders. Look again at the first two verses, Mark 14, 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Him by stealth and kill Him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. You know, when when you're going to kill someone, it's generally because you value something more than you value them. Something is more important to you than they are. They want to kill Jesus because they value something more than Him. He is in the way of what? Power. They value power. Remember what Jesus said just a short while ago here in Mark. It was in 1238. He said, beware of the scribes 
who like to walk around in long robes and like the greetings in the marketplaces and and to have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. The scribes were the, the Bible scholars of the day. Why was Jesus an impediment to them? Well, if we think all the way back to the beginning of Mark, we remember that, that the people, just the, the, the normal people, have been comparing the scribes to Jesus unfavorably since the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Mark one twenty two. listen to this. And they, the, the people, they were astonished at His teaching, at Jesus' teaching, for He taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Jesus is making them look like they don't know the Bible at all. Like they don't have any authority. And I'm sure the scribes were thinking, no, 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 wait, wait. This is not how this works. We tell you what the Bible means. Not this carpenter from Galilee. Who does he think he is? Jesus is a threat to their influence and therefore a threat to their prestige and power. It's the same thing with the chief priests who, who ran the temple complex. You know, they... they these guys literally line their pockets from the proceeds of the temple. They can't have Jesus cleansing the temple like He did back in chapter 11. can't have that. They can't have Jesus showing them to be hypocrites as He has through His whole ministry and particularly in chapters 11 and 12. They can't have that. He's threatening their, their power. Another indication that Jesus is a threat to their power is this whole issue of stealth. Why do they need to to arrest him by stealth? Well, because the crowd has received Jesus favorably. The crowd is pro-Jesus, which these Jewish leaders can't have. Now, if they they try to arrest Jesus publicly, there's going to be a riot among the people. Why is that a problem? Because if there's a riot, then the Romans are going to come down on the Jewish leaders. All of that threatens the Jewish leaders' power, which they can't have. They value power, so they're going to kill Jesus. He's an impediment to what they value, so he has to be removed. We see other values at work as we continue. Look at verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, a pure nard, very costly, And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, just very quickly, you can bet that Simon the leper, you you could bet that that's an old nickname. By this point, Jesus has pretty much eradicated illness in Palestine. But still, Simon represents one who would have been a lifelong outcast. But he's exactly the kind of person that Jesus rejoiced to associate with. And so it's It is no surprise that Jesus is sharing a meal with this man in in his home, reclining with him. Now, another person who would have been on the low end of the social totem pole arrives, this woman, and what we see her doing here may be lost on us a little bit. We really need to see the reaction of the onlookers to get a a feel for the gravity of her actions. Verse 4, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Now, 300 denarii 
might, might as well be a thousand Star Wars credits. You know, we, we don't know what this, ta- what this means. But let's say this is taking place in 2022, Westchester, Ohio. Now, based upon the median household income here, okay, today, we, we, we would say that this, this is $70,000 of ointment in a jar. $70,000 in ointment. And she's poured it out on Jesus' head like it's a travel bottle of head and shoulders. She's poured it out. And these folks watching, these onlookers, they likely included the disciples. It doesn't say that explicitly, but verse 10 indicates that Judas leaves this scene to go straight to the chief priest, so we know that he at least was there. Anyway, the onlookers are stripping a gear as she does this. What are you doing? And we can kind of get a feel for that, right? When we, when we get an idea of what kind of money we're talking about. Pastor John and I had lunch with a guy the other day whose life is planting churches. He lives to plant churches, and that takes money. Imagine if Pastor John and I, at the end of that meal, we had, we had taken out seven $10,000 stacks of cash and handed it to the waitress as a tip after this guy's been talking to us about church planting. What are you doing? That's what he'd say. Give her a 50. It's going to be the biggest tip she's ever gotten at Bob Evans. Give her a 50 and let me plant some churches. Because it's what, what's, what's it about here? It's about doing good for one person, a crazy amount of good for one person, an insane amount of good for one person, or a lot of good for a lot of people. What are you going to choose? That's what these guys are thinking as they, as they watch this thing. And we get that, right? It's, it's not that these, these folks watching this, that they're evil. This actually makes sense. You can do an insane amount of good for one people, one person, or you could do a lot of good for a, a lot of people. The problem is that unlike the, the woman, as we'll see, these onlookers have lost all sense of context. They've lost all sense of context. It, it's not simply a case of doing extravagant good for one versus doing good for many. Because who is the one? Jesus is going to is, is going to indicate this here in a couple of verses. Who, who is the one? This, this, this is the Genesis 3 seed of the woman come to crush the head of the serpent. This is the seed of Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is the son of David, heir to an eternal throne. He's reclining at the table right in front of them. She's anointed him, and they should have known all of these things. Mark has said enough, just in his gospel, that, that we can glean all of the things that I've just said, They should know all of this, and yet the question that they ask in their incredulity is is more literally phrased, this waste of ointment has happened for what? 
And, and that says so much about their hearts toward Jesus, and, and they probably said it without even thinking. Who He is and, and what He will do is inherently invaluable. He is worthy of any and every gesture of adoration that could be bestowed upon Him. And yet how incredibly easy it is to lose sight of that, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's just like drifting off to sleep at the end of a long day. It is so easy to lose sight of who Jesus is, how valuable He is, and what He has done. Because we get busy. Jesus, he, Jesus just becomes part of the furniture of our lives. And we begin to regard magnanimous expressions of devotion to Him as bordering on unreasonable. And our hearts begin to feel, if not explicitly think and say, this waste of ointment has happened for what? Begin to feel that about gestures of devotion to the Lord. Jesus is just another thing. And we can find ourselves in the same place as these onlookers who value what? Well, we might say they just value temporal things. They don't have an eternal perspective. What about the woman? What does she value? Well, again, she she took liquid worth almost a year's salary and poured it on someone's head. Jesus' head. Now, it would be completely wrong to say that she doesn't value the ointment. It would be completely wrong. She's a first century Jewish woman, almost certainly not independently, independently wealthy. What she does with the ointment, which is so incredibly valuable, demonstrates how she values Jesus. By, by pouring it on His head, she wasn't saying, this stuff is nothing to me. Rather, by the value of the ointment, she's saying, Jesus is everything to me. Verse 6, Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. So Jesus commends her. He's saying, look, she's, she's done exactly the right thing. This is good what she's done. Verse 7, for you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. Indicating once again, his own awareness that his, his death is coming. He's also reminding them he's not keeping this quiet from them. It's no secret. Jesus is going to die. It appears that Jesus is gently chiding them for taking his presence for granted. There's that, that, that insensitivity among them to the eternal context. Jesus has just become a part of the furniture of their lives. Just another thing. They need this reminder. He's going to die for their sins. And what is this for? Verse 8. She has done what she could. And and those few words indicate to us how valuable this ointment was to her. In English, this doesn't come, come across great. She's done what she could. That, that can sound as if Jesus is kind of minimizing, minimizing what she did. She, she did what she could. 
you know, one much, but it was a little bit. That's not what's being said. It's more literally what she had, she did. And this puts her in the same category as the widow who gave everything at the end of chapter 12. What, what Jesus is saying is, what she had, everything she had, she gave. If, if, if she had had ointment twice this valuable, she would have given that. If she'd had ointment that was a tenth as valuable, she would have given that. Jesus is worthy of her all, whatever that is. Nothing less than all is a fitting statement of His value. That's, that's the, the point. That's the point. And so by pouring all of this out, again, she's not saying this, this, this ointment is worth nothing to me. It is her all. And she's saying that He is worthy of it. Continuing in verse 8. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. We'll we'll take this backwards, okay? So verse 9, think about verse 9. What are we doing right now? Right? We're talking about this woman, what she did 2,000 years later. And every time this passage is preached, this woman is talked about. But she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Think about that. Preparing his body for burial beforehand. You don't do that. That's not the order of events. You you prepare a body for, for burial after the person has died. Jesus is eating food. He's at a meal. He's still talking. They're having a conversation. You do this after a body has died. She's preparing a body for burial beforehand. What does that indicate? This is an act of what? Faith. This is an act of faith. It is an act of devotion for what she believes Jesus is going to do. It's an act of devotion that says, Jesus is worthy of all that I have because He is the one who is going to do what will save me. The the Jewish leaders, they value their power, The onlookers value temporal things. The woman values Jesus. And that brings us finally to Judas. What does Judas value? Judas values money. Mark doesn't give us a window into Judas' thoughts and motivations. All we know for sure is that he did it for money. In 3.14, all the way back in 3.14, we were told that Judas, I'm sorry, Jesus chose the 12, including Judas, so that they might be with Him, with Jesus. So Judas has enjoyed all the things of Christ. And like the other twelve, he was gifted for ministry. 3.14 and 15 tells us that along with the other eleven, Judas was sent out to preach the good news. So, so Judas has been preaching Christ. He's been preaching that, that Mark 1.14 and 15 message. The kingdom has come. The gospel, repent and believe the good news. Judas has been preaching that. And 3.14 and 15 tell us also that 
that Judas with the other 11 has been given authority to cast out demons. He has been doing these things. 6.5 tells us that these disciples also were anointing people with oil and healing many. Judas has been doing these things, but more importantly, Judas has been with Jesus. He has Jesus, has had Jesus, and he sells him for silver. He wants money more. And what a contrast Mark has set up with this sandwich. What a contrast between Judas and this woman. Whereas she sacrificed money as an expression of love for Jesus. Judas has sold Jesus as an expression of love for money. There is a wide chasm between what the insider values and what the outsider values. Now, before we, before we close by thinking about how to apply these things to our lives, I, I want to look at one more theme briefly, which is that man's pursuit of what he values accomplishes God's sovereign plan. Man's pursuit of what he values accomplishes God's sovereign plan. Now, it's, it's not my intent to give a detailed explanation of the interplay between man's meaningful decisions and God's sovereign control. Save that for another day. You can find plenty of that on our blog. But there are signals here that as these people are doing what they most want to do, in other words, they're making meaningful decisions, as they're doing that, as they're pursuing what they value, they are at the same time accomplishing God's eternal plan of salvation, which Jesus predicted many times over. Back in chapters 8, 9, 10, Jesus foretold His death, burial, and resurrection. I mentioned one of those from chapter 8 already. Here's another one from chapter 10. You remember this, when, where, where the Lord said, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock Him and spit on Him and flog Him and kill Him, and after three days He will rise. Did you hear that at the beginning there, what Jesus said? We're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. That's precisely what we're reading about here in this passage. Judas is delivering Jesus over to the chief priests and scribes. Is Jesus just a good guesser? Should you just package him up and take him to Vegas? He's just, man, this guy's lucky. No. He knows this is going to happen. He knows this is going to happen. Is it because he just has, he's got a crystal ball and he can see into the future? No. He knows this is going to happen because it has been planned by a sovereign God. It has been planned by a sovereign God. The Old Testament authors also predicted all of these things. How do we know that? Acts chapter 3, verse 18. What God foretold. By the mouth of the, all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. 
You find also in Acts chapter 4, verses 28 and 29, we, we, we listen to the saints praying these words. For truly in this city, they're talking about Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. In other words, all of these things that are happening to Jesus, all of them are happening because God the Father planned it to happen. And he predestined that it would happen. However, that God planned it and that God predestined it does not mean that those involved in Jesus' death were mindless automatons. Passages like Mark 14 demonstrate this for us because they show people doing what they most want. Look at 14.10 again. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad. Another way of of translating that would be, they rejoiced. When they heard this, they're thrilled. Why? This is what they want. They want this. They want to kill him. They're so excited. They're They're not robots. They're not just having their strings pulled. They want it. Likewise, the onlookers watching this woman waste all that ointment. text says that they're indignant. What are you doing? What does that indicate? Real emotion. What are you doing? They're not robots. They're acting in accordance with what they most want. All these people Pursuing what they value. Accomplishing God's will. Now look back at verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We'll have occasion to talk more about this next week, Lord willing. But remember the Passover. Remember the Passover. This commemorates the definitive picture the definitive picture of salvation in Israel's history. You remember the story. The final plague in Egypt was the killing of all the firstborn in Egypt, all except those households where the blood of a lamb covered the doorpost. And the angel of God passed through all Egypt, killing every firstborn, but when he saw homes covered by the blood of the lamb, he passed over that home. And that the firstborn in that home was saved by the vicarious death of that lamb. And so God commanded the people to observe the Passover annually in remembrance of that great salvation. Now, these Jewish leaders, two days before the Passover, are desperate to seize Jesus and to kill Him. And when they do, which they will, as we'll find in the coming chapters, when they do, they will unwittingly slaughter the ultimate substitutionary sacrifice such that Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 5-7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. In other words, all, all of these people doing what they most want to do are fulfilling the sovereign plan of God. This woman doing what she most wants to do is preparing Jesus' body for burial. Judas, doing what he most wants to do, is delivering Jesus over to the chief priests and scribes. Chief priests and scribes, doing what they most want to do, accuse Jesus unto death. All of them pursuing what they most valued. 
So what do you most value? The figures in this passage, they, they offer points on a spectrum. We've, we've talked about four groups or four individuals. They're not the only points on this spectrum of valuing Christ ultimately to wanting to kill Him. We could find other points on this spectrum. But they are valuable points to help us think through where we might find ourselves on that spectrum. Some here this morning may be like the Jewish leaders. And Jesus is an outright impediment to what you value. He wants to be Lord. You recognize that. And you're not having it. And so you, you just outright reject Him. Now to you, I, I say with all care and compassion that that story does not end well. As I've mentioned, the penalty for sin is eternal wrath. And I understand that you think that, you think that you're free now. The truth is that you're not Jesus said in John chapter 8, everyone who practices sin is the slave of sin. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. If you hear nothing else I say, hear this. Jesus is a far kinder and gentler master than your sin. Repent. And trust in Him today. Now, others of us may find ourselves somewhere else on the spectrum, perhaps in a place similar to Judas. Perhaps we have walked, we've walked as an insider, so to speak, for a time. You've enjoyed the things of the Lord, maybe for many years. However, The allure of the things of the world has caused you to find the things of Christ to chafe. And you have wondered if it may be more profitable to to remove Jesus. Or to walk away from Jesus. And here's an example of what this might look like. We might not characterize it in our own minds as walking away from Jesus, but here's what what it might look like. The culturally acceptable Jesus is is cool. The the Jesus who who, who doesn't tell anybody what to believe or what not to believe, the one who makes no moral statements, the one who doesn't make any demands of loyalty or claims to lordship. By the way, he's he's the Jesus that you can only believe in if you don't read the Bible. He's cool. He's a nice guy. He helped people. He never upset anyone. There's, there's that Jesus. And He's so attractive in, in this culture. So attractive in any lost culture. But the Bible Jesus, the real Jesus, He's going to get me in trouble socially. He's going to get me in trouble with my friends, my family, my coworkers, my social media followers, because he expects me to believe certain things and not others. 
he believes and expects me to believe and proclaim that sin is so dangerous that there's only one divine response, judgment. And that judgment has to either be met by the sinner or Jesus. He believes that, expects me to believe that, expects me to say that to people. The Bible, Jesus, believes that He is the only way to God, expects me to believe that, and expects me to say that to people. So, if I value other people and their acceptance above all, then the real Jesus may be an impediment. Remaking Him in the image of the culture is not a viable option. I have to get rid of Him in that sense. That's just one way that the culture may begin to pull us away from the Lord, if that's you. If you feel that tension, the New Testament contains grave warnings for you. Grave warnings, like Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, which reads this way, For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding Him up to contempt. So with the the author of Hebrews, I say to you, hold fast your confession until the end. Don't follow Judas, the son of perdition. Follow Jesus, the Son of God. Those who persevere to the end will be saved. Others of us may find ourselves somewhere else on that spectrum, closer to the onlookers here in this passage. You like Jesus. You're at the meal, so to speak. You're well acquainted with Him. But perhaps you've lost all sense of perspective on His grandeur. He's become like the furniture of your life. And so, deep expressions of sacrificial obedience and devotion at times, maybe much of the time, seem grossly out of place to you. They they would feel awkward for you to do them. When you see others do them, you think, oh, that's over the top. Perhaps you are in the habit of just cordoning off parts of your life from Him. I'm, I'm going to save this for later. I'm holding this in reserve. No, this, this, this is just for me. I'm sorry I've got plans for this, Lord. It's almost like Jesus has become just another guy and to you, I, w- I, would, I would encourage you to spend days soaking in a passage like Colossians 1, 15 through 23. Colossians 1, 15 through 23. Remind yourself slowly who Jesus is. Get, get neck deep into that passage and just... Soak there. Meditate on the person, work, and value of Christ. Well, there are those few, and you can think of them right now, who are like the woman in this passage. 
who, who are saying constantly, what else can I find? What else can I find of me? What else can I find of mine to pour out in service to this magnificent Redeemer God? Worthy, worthy, worthy is He. May, may the Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and the instrument of His Word, the ministry of His saints, move us, each of us, toward the heart of that woman where we are all saying, worthy is He. There is, there is no expression of devotion that I could ever consider outlandish in light of the tremendous value of this Savior. Before I pray, I'm just going to close by reading that passage that I recommended a moment ago. As I do, I invite you to close your eyes if you'd like in the spirit of prayer and just think about the Lord Jesus. I'll then pray and then we'll enjoy a moment of silent reflection. Colossians 1, verse 15 through 23. He is the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless, and above reproach before Him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Father, we praise You for this glorious Christ. And we confess to You our insufficiently glorious thoughts of Him. We pray that all the power of the Holy Spirit would be spent in our hearts to magnify the Lord Jesus there. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for its clarity, how it penetrates to the deepest parts of our souls and hearts. And we pray, Father, that in the coming moments, 
your Holy Spirit would continue to use it to work. That we would love Jesus above all things. Value Him above all things. And so, live for your glory. We pray in His name. Amen.